Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Now, as I'm speaking on love, and I give you these principles today and next week, some of you will be interpreting this in the relationship of marriage. And I think that's very healthy, and I really encourage you to do that, because that is a love for a lifetime, of course. Some of you that are not married yet, you might be thinking, things seem to be going pretty good in my life right now. But I'd like you to think in terms of that you may be married someday, or you may get into a relationship with someone, whether it's on the job or a ministry or the community, and you're not married to them, but you're having to live or work with that person on a day-to-day basis. The context in which I'm going to be teaching you today is the context of 12 guys that are present. We know one of them was a bad guy. We know Judas is part of that. And Jesus is telling them that they need to love one another. And then he unleashes those 12 guys into a world who will hate Jesus Christ. And they need to be strong in the midst of all that opposition. And how that all of them died a horrible death, martyrdom, or suffered martyrdom, except one who ultimately committed suicide because he rejected Jesus Christ. Now, that being the case, I'm hoping that you'll understand the truths about love is said in that context, but it can be applied to any relationship that you have because it doesn't say specifically in marriage. It says others. So anytime you're in contact or connection with another person, then this love that we're going to learn this week and next week is meant to be demonstrated. So it really is for all of us. So the first word that comes against us as a strike is what is really love all about? Well, that brings me to the second one because we're Christians here. And the second strike I have against this message is the fact of what we'll call familiarity. There are a lot of you that have been around the Word of God and the teaching on love so much that you are so familiar with this that you're kind of going to endure whatever time we have left to get over this. It might be a little reminder here or there, but let's get on with other things. You might be already checking your, your, your phone for messages, etc., and you're not getting this because we're familiar with it. Here's what we are familiar with. First of all, we know that there are three Greek words. It seemed like the Greek culture really talked a lot about love, and the New Testament is written in Greek. The three words, one word is the word eros, which we get our erotic love. Oddly enough, many Christians don't know this. They think, oh, that's one of the loves that's found in Scripture. Technically, that word eros, erotica, is not found in Scripture. What is found is a demonstration of the sexual sensual, and that's found even in the Old Testament with the Song of Solomon, and it's alluded to in a few other places of Scripture, but that word itself is not mentioned there. So is eros a part of love? Yes, it is, but it's not the motivator nor the driving force. It is just a part in the container of love. The second word is the word filial. We get our word filial, like family, brotherly. That's where you get Philadelphia, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. Yet you hear all the murders going on. You wonder if they're really having problems with that. But anyway, back to this. We can experience that. In fact, people who do not know Christ can accept and demonstrate eros love. They can also accept and demonstrate filial or brotherly, sisterly love, relational love with one another. We can do that. Many of you probably have seen people today that have done that, especially in the military where there's a lot of love and protection and helping others that are going through deep times. You, show, you see all of that. And that is found in Scripture. The third kind of love is a love that's a lot different. And let's just kind of test you. What would be the Greek word for the best kind of love that we know about already? Say it with me together. What word is that? Agape. All right, now you can see why this is a strike against this message. You already know about agape love. 
The problem is, is not how much we know about it, and I'm really asking you not to listen to this message and say, oh, let me see what I know. I want you to ask yourself the question, not how much of this do I really know? I want you to ask yourself, how much of this am I really doing, this agape love? And when we talk about that love, it is a unique love because God is love, Christ is love. We also know that the Holy Spirit wrapped up in the beautiful Trinity, the deity, it's all love. That's the essence of love. That's all he, love, all right? Now that part of it is God and that is demonstrated to us in so many different ways. And probably the greatest way, the most eternal way is when Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins as we are wicked sinners, he would forgive us and give us eternal life, which means an eternal relationship with the God of the universe the only God. And that's the love. Now, you're hearing all of that. So now it begins to help us move in the direction. My goodness, if I'm going to have to have that kind of love, how can I really make that happen? Where am I going to go with that? And that's why this message today, I hope, would be one that might really help you to understand where this is at. So what I'm going to ask you to do, if you have one of those Bibles that you pulled out of the pew rack and you're at chapter 13, those of you that have your little outline in front of you, the little, I put in the bulletin for you, will you pull that out? Because what I'd like for all of us to do is to read together out loud. So in unison, we can all hear each other read John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, because we're going to talk a little bit more about this particular love today. This is our primary text. And then next week, we're going to open it up even more. But for today, let's look at it. Do you have it ready? Let's read it together, no matter how you might read. And if you have a different version, you read whatever version you have. But here's how it says in this Bible. Verse 34, let's read out loud together. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What a great, great passage of Scripture. Now, when you read that, when it starts out here by saying that we are to love one another, but it's a new commandment, some of you that have been in the Bible long enough, you're going to scratch your head and say, hmm, you know what? This sounds like a contradiction. I know other places in Scripture that says to love others, and Jesus says this is a new commandment, so there must be a contradiction. If he said it before and he's saying it now, it's not so new. What does it mean that it's a new commandment? Well, first of all, let me explain to you when it was first used. The first time this was used is in Leviticus. And if you want to turn there, you can. If not, just listen to it. Leviticus chapter 18. And here's what was saying here. This was in the context of the law. Those of you that are new, you might think of the Old Testament law being the Ten Commandments. That is referred to as the Decalogue, Deca Ten, Ten Commandments. That's the supreme part of the law of the Old Testament, but that is not all the law that would be in the Old Testament. Another part of the law would be this that's written here. It was given to the Jewish people so that when they went into another land, they would know how to treat one another, but also how to treat their neighbors. And this is what you read in Leviticus chapter 18. Excuse me, chapter 19, verse 18. Chapter 19, verse 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. And you could automatically start thinking, am I taking vengeance? Am I holding a grudge against any of my people here? It says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord Jehovah. So God said this, and he's telling the Jews that. And so you might think, okay, that was for a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time. What about today? Now, if you wanted to fast forward it in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus then gives what is known as the great commandment. In it, there are two parts of the great commandment. 
In Matthew 22, it says this, that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our might. We're to love the Lord. The second commandment that comes with that commandment in the great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So what he's doing now is that he is validating the fact that he is God. He was part of the inspiration, the Holy Spirit, God, all being one essence. The Old Testament is true. It's validated as being inspired. It is for us to understand. And he puts it in the New Testament, this particular period of time. So he's saying that Old Testament truth is today as well. We are to love the Lord and we're to love others, period, in the subject. However, in this passage of John, he says this is a new commandment. And this is the, where the rubber meets the road. And if you didn't hear anything else that I say this morning, if you grab this truth and you allow the Holy Spirit to really drive this truth, you'll understand what makes this a new commandment. The other said, love your neighbor, love others. Now this says something else. Let's look back at the passage and have your pens ready if you want to mark it in your Bible. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. If we stop there, that might be a contradiction. But it goes on to say, even as I have loved you. That's what you want to mark in your Bible. We call it the as I principle. You want to have that. So what he's saying here is not only to love one another, now you need to look at a model or a mentor, and that would be the Lord. So if you're asking yourself, all right, how do I love the unlovely? How do I love that irregular person in my life, that sandpaper boss or that sandpaper mate? How do I do that? Why do I do that? It's going to be wrapped up in not just God gave us a command, but he says, now this is how you do it, just as Christ has done that for you and me. And if you go further in the scripture, it really gets interesting because we know that we look at Christ in his relationship to God the Father in his earthly. Now, we know he was all God on the earth, but he was all man on the earth. So there's a little bit of modeling of a son to a father relationship. So he obeyed his father. His father loved him. He loved his father. So he had this thing going on with the deity here. And that became the model for us now. We love the Lord. We know he loves us. We obey him. And just like God loves us, now he says, take that same principle and you pass it on to the next generation, which means you love other people. So again, as I look at Christ, I look at God, I look at the Holy Spirit, I look at the deity, I look at the Godhead, just as I look to him, that's how I am to love others. So this amazing love that we see in Christ, that same amazing love can be and should be demonstrated to others. Now, we know that that amazing love is done by Christ and he is perfect and we're not. We also know that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. We will never die for the sins of other people. We cannot redeem anybody. That part won't be there. But the reaching out and coming alongside someone, watch this now, and pointing them to Christ, which is the ultimate reason we are doing good and loving other people, is to help them get into a relationship with Jesus Christ in some measure. So even all of our do-gooding, loving others, is to point them to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. How very rich this passage is. Now to understand this truth of loving others as Christ loved us, I believe that we have to understand three more three more principles or three more contrasts of what love is and what it's not. And I'd like you to follow along because these three will help us understand even this passage here of what love is and isn't. But I'm going to ask you to do me a big favor right now. If you know Christ is your Savior, I want you to rely upon the Holy Spirit to help you understand this because this is actually going to be a contrast between a biblical worldview and a Christian worldview, or I mean, and a secular worldview. A Christian worldview versus a secular worldview. I'm going to show you the difference between the two. Now remember, Christ, 
never did things to take away our fun. What he taught us to do was to how for us to have joy. The Bible is not a book to rain on our parade. The Bible is a book so that we can get the most richest life that we could have. Not money-wise, but the richness of what God has for us. So let's look at these three here. What are the differences that we need to understand when we start thinking about love? The first one is this. We need to understand the difference between I feel and what I do. What I feel and what I do. I don't always feel very loving. I know that's hard for you to believe because you might think I'm a very nice, loving guy. But there are times I don't feel very loving. I don't feel very loving when I've waited a long time for a parking place and someone kind of whips around me and jumps in ahead of me. I don't feel very loving. Do you feel very loving like that? I really struggle with that kind of stuff at times, you know? There are different things that might kind of get our goat and cause us not to be very loving. And that's why we don't always base everything on, do I feel like I really love? Have you noticed with some people that they have a particular emotion? You can't command someone else's emotion to change. Someone else might not be very loving back to you. You can't make them be very loving. Do you have a child that sometimes is very quick to cry and you're pretty much tired of it? It almost seems that almost any time this child just cries, you know, you tell them no. Nah, you know, can you do that? You just want to say, would you stop crying right now? Wouldn't it be great if you could get them to just stop crying? How about if you're married to someone that has an anger problem and they're kind of really blowing up and they're getting ready to explode and you say, stop that anger. And immediately they go, oh, yes, peace. You know, they don't do that. It doesn't happen that way. You can't necessarily command the change of a feeling. It's not, we'd like to do that. However, let me make this clear. Again, feelings and emotions still are in the same box of love. It's just not the driver of love. It's not the thing that should motivate us. It should not, watch, it should not be the thing that we seek. In other words, I will love once I feel like I really want to love. It's not going to come that way. And we need to be very, very careful. Because it's not always going to be that way. Maybe a better way to look at that would be in the example of Jesus Christ. When you talk about feeling and you talk about what I do, between the feeling and the doing part is the word commitment. I need to do it because that's what I'm committed to do. That's what I, that's what I, I, I have to do. This is what I want to do. All right, take you back in time for a moment. Jesus is now finished up at the Last Supper. He's washed the feet of his, of his buddies there. He then gives them this teaching on loving one another just as I loved you. He kind of sends them out. And as they're going out, Jesus goes to pray. He knows what's going to happen very shortly, that he's going to have to go to this horrible cross. And before he gets to the cross, he's going to be humiliated. And before he's humiliated, he's going to be whipped and tortured. And before he's whipped and tortured, he's going to have people that are going to bring false charges against him. And before they bring false charges against him, one of the 12 guys that he built himself into betrays him for some money. And so he has all of this going on, so he endures all of this. The rejection of his team, the betrayal of a team member, the mock and the horrible trial that he went through, the bearing of the false witness, the brutalization of being tortured. Prior to that, he is weeping and praying, and his sweat was so profuse that it dropped off of him as if he was brutalized and blood would be coming off of him wanting that this would pass from him. But he said this, Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Now, he's back up on the cross. We walk over to him. We see him on the cross and we say, What are you doing up there, G? What are you doing up there? Do you think Jesus would have said, Oh, I don't know. I just kind of felt like going to the cross today. He never would say that. He went up there because there was a need that you and I had. There was a purpose for him to go through all of that, fulfilling prophecy, 
going through the whole blood thing when he died on the cross for us. He did all of that to show us all that he endured because of his love for you and me, and he didn't do it based on feeling. So in our own mind, there may be the time when I fell in love, I might feel like I love someone. If we allow that to motivate us, and we don't do it until we are motivated by that, we would miss out on a lot of opportunities to be the loving person that God would want us to be. So we have to look back at ourselves and say, I need to love even when my mate betrays me. I need to love even when my children break my heart. I need to love even when I cannot get out of this job and place of employment right now. I just can't do it economically. I can't do it socially. I can't do it. But I hate going in every day. We still do it. And we don't just bite the bullet like in the Old West. We go in it with a mission of how can I demonstrate God's love just as He loved to those that will not love me back. Now you're going to be saying that's going to take an awful lot of what we might call it um, power or strength that I really can't do that. I know that. And I want you to listen very carefully because when I get into this next point, I want to show you that we can't do it, but He can so let's go to number two. I need to understand, of course, that I don't do it based on feeling. I have to do it because that's what I do. That's who I am. That's who I am in Christ. I need to do this. But the second one is, I need to know the difference between what I should and what I can. Some of us, we feel like, uh, well, I'll think about loving someone, or we, we feel better when we say, I really should love them. And so we now kind of buy into the truth of all of that. And so that makes us feel better because we're not rejecting the truth of that statement of loving one another. Yeah, I really should do that. And then Satan comes in and he says, that's good enough. That's all right. As long as you feel like you should do this, you got the battle mostly won. I don't think that's enough just to say, I, I think I should. Jesus said, you must love one another as I love you. And you've got to park. We have to park. I'm not just, I know I should. I know I want to. I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm on that road. Uh, Jesus doesn't give us a timeline. He says, this is what you need to do. Just as I loved you. Now, as I look at this, I can see how absolutely impossible that that can be in of myself. Let me give you some, um, an illustration maybe that might help you understand how this could fit together. So we can go all the way across the line and realize it's not us, but it's Christ. Um, I don't watch a lot of TV and I don't watch a lot of sports, but one of the sports of sporting events I like is the Indianapolis 500. I don't get a chance to watch it all. It comes on so early here in Hawaii and I tape it. I always tape it every year because I want to see it and hear the testimonies and what's going on. And somehow before I can watch it, I already find out who the winner is. Somehow, it, and it just kind of kills it all. So I never finish watching this thing. Carol's laughing because she just sees me do this every year then I never watch it. But let's pretend for a moment we're at the Indianapolis 500 and you now are given a Formula One racing car. But instead of that car being souped up to go 200 miles an hour, you've got the greatest engineers and pit crew and they've souped up your car that can go over 350 miles an hour. Now you're excited about that because you want to get into that car and go real fast but you're a little nervous. And some of us would like to have that kind of a relationship with someone that we love very dearly. That we can step on the pedal to the metal and we'd have a very healthy relationship where we realize that, man, this relationship is difficult. 
All of us who are getting ready to get married, we had an ambivalent feeling. We were so excited. We were being married, finally found the one, and all the pomp and circumstance that goes with that and the coming honeymoon. We get excited. Then the next thing we're thinking, oh, did I do the right thing? Maybe I should. Is this really right? Is this the right thing? We have all these nerves. We get into this formula when car like that. So what do we do? We finally say, okay, I, I really can't do this, but if I talk to my pit crew and the spotters, so we get on the radio and we think, well, if I talk to them, they will help guide me with this 350 mile an hour killing machine and get me around the track to be a winner. And so some of us, we buy into that our relationships will be better. All we've got to do is pray when we're going around a curb or pray when we see a wreck in front of us of another relationship or pray when we hear something wrong with the engine of our car and our relationship. So we get involved in praying. I'm going to tell you that you do need to do that, so I'm not removing from us that important uh, relationship and tool of prayer. But on the other hand, we need to admit that prayer is not enough to be able to handle relationships that are driven by depravity in our own heart and that we're hearing so many signals from the world that's giving us misdirections to be able to run this race car. So we say, okay, that's, that's good, I'm praying, but wouldn't it be great if while I'm driving this car, I could actually have the person who designed the car, who can see ahead, that really has more experience than me to be able to do this? Wouldn't it be neat if I can kind of scoot him right here next to my seat and we could down the highway with him? It'd be like many of us, we've come to the point that prayer is good, but wouldn't it be great if we just had Jesus as our co-pilot? And so we go to a lot of Bible studies and we study His Word and we go to a lot of seminars and we go to conferences and we watch DVDs and we listen to CDs and we talk to counselors and all of that is good because it takes us to another level beyond prayer. It's like having Jesus right there. And we always remember that He says He'll never leave us nor forsake us, so He is. The problem is, is that it often doesn't work because our depraved nature is while we have Him next to us, we still kind of, you still want to drive, don't you? still want to be in the driver's seat, don't you? My brother, who's 15 years older than me, took me out to drive for the first time. Mothers, kids, don't listen. When I was six years old, he put me between his legs and his old hot rod that he had back in those days in the 50s. And, and he said, okay now, Stanley, take a hold of these, this wheel here and you can go ahead and drive it. Now, I remember as a little boy, when I would drive, I would see my dad kind of keep correcting the direction of the car so he wouldn't run off the road. But a little kid doesn't drive like this. How does a little kid, when he says, show us how you drive, what does a kid do? Have you ever driven your car like that? My wife thinks I do sometimes. But, you know, you're driving like this. You want to grab that wheel. I say, Chuck, let me have the wheel. I want to have the wheel. And some of us, we do. We want the Lord to be right there, especially if we're going to wreck. But if not, we want to drive. We like to be in control. Being in control isn't necessarily bad because part of it is making decisions and taking direction and looking ahead, setting goals. But when we own that and it's ours and we allow ourselves to think that there's satisfaction because we were able to do it, we're in deep weeds then. So that illustration doesn't work. The only way we're going to be able to take this multi-million dollar race car around this track and to end this race without crashing and wrecking and bloodshed and pain is when we say, you know, I want to get in this car and I want the experience of this race in this car. But Lord, you drive. And we'll follow him. And I think those of you that have chosen to submit yourself to the Lord, his word, his spirit, 
and let him drive the relationships in your life, even when those relationships are challenging, you're, on, you're in for a ride. But it's a great ride when you know the Lord is right there all the time. So there's this difference between what I should do and what I can do. Bottom line is, I can't do this love. But he can because he is love and he lives in me. Therefore, I will because he's doing it through me. So listen carefully. Those of you who are especially new, listen on the radio now or maybe on our, our website, listen carefully. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you're having this unusual tension going on inside of you. You're saying, I know I, I can't do this, and yeah, I, I, got, I got the Lord, but this sounds really heavy duty. I don't know that I can do all of that. That's a heavy burden for me to be able to do this. I, I wanted to, but... I, but it just sounds so confining and it's going to be so puritanical and there won't be all that, that love that I want to have in this thing. And you're struggling with it. Others are saying, you know, I'm coming to the point that says, I've wrecked so many times. I've left so many wrecked cars behind me. I have bruised so many spectators in my life and my relationships. I've got to start over somewhere. And I'm just pleading you that you would understand, watch this, and I say this as if I was on your lanai and I'm hugging you right now. There is no other way to have the relationship God wants you to have apart from Jesus Christ. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.